How the baby formula shortage reveals this year's main Davos agenda. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. Diving board, let's tee it up. This is the headline. Biden admits he didn't foresee impact of Abbott's shutdown on already growing baby formula shortage. He said, I don't think anyone anticipated the impact. Formula makers did. That was the headline from ABC News today. And I wasn't even going to cover this story, although I did see a headline last week that really gave me pause, and I feel like they're continuing to push this thing. So I guess people did not realize that, read the story from last week and understand what really led to this. I can't believe this thing is still going, knowing what led to this. So the headline from last week that I found interesting, it was a Washington Times headline, FDA admits mistakes led to shortage of formula. Mail glitch delayed report on factory. So that headline dangles some threads to pull on, although it really even still doesn't lay out the full extent of the FDA's responsibility for this. And for me, all of these stories, I actually came up with a hashtag that I've been getting a lot of use out of, hashtag another perfect storm, mainly for the global supply chain issues and power outages. Those are the two things that the perfect storms just keep popping up. There are other things too, but the bottom line is a lot of these industries, a lot of these necessities are things that have been thoroughly vetted by a really robust society. We're a savvy society. We've pushed a lot of economic activity through the systems that we have, from baby formula to electricity to chip manufacturing and transportation. Yes, the lockdown did interrupt things, and a lot of things that we are told came from the lockdown people being sick, now this weird labor shortage, which makes no sense, a whole bunch of transportation issues that really, when you look into what exactly are causing these things, the explanations don't ring true. They certainly aren't some straight line out of this lockdown policy. And pretty much every single time when I looked into it, each specific detail was something that went wrong, which in and of itself could not have explained this weird breakdown. But since everything went wrong at once, that's why we have this problem. So they keep calling them perfect storms. But a perfect storm is a rare event, not an everyday event. And it demonstrates to me, anytime I see the expression perfect storm or see a whole host of unlikely things coming together at once, I'm going to be skeptical about the story. And I'm going to think that the story is being spun, misrepresented, somehow provoked in order to set up a policy or to set up a change something very serious in society. And I think absolutely this global supply chain thing has a lot of agenda items attached to it. One of them I think is they want us to get used to less variety, kind of Soviet style, waiting on lines, shortages, happy to have anything, get, take what you can get. I think that's part of it. And and maybe that's going to be true with the baby formula stuff. I don't know. There are bigger agendas at work even than that. So I even read recently in, I was looking into the World Economic Forum stuff from Davos, which was in May. I think it just ended. 
And man, does it have a laundry list, beyond a laundry list, of agenda items that are chilling, like one after another. Even the headings are pretty crazy. So geoeconomics was one, anti-globalism, justifying more global governance, like that's a thinly veiled (laughs) euphemism for global government. So all of this stuff are agenda items that I... I can tie to many, if not all, of the headlines that we've been seeing, at least over the past couple of weeks. I mean, you could say it's all the headlines always are feeding into these agenda items because these are the guys who set the agendas and the media follows their lead. That is possible. But this particular one was very clearly laid out in a CNN article. I was just reading about Davos, and it said that anti-globalism and what they're calling fragmentation and I think they mean of industry, of supplies, is a problem that will cause a lot of suffering and heartache and poverty and sickness. And they use as an example in this CNN article, which is obviously setting the narrative, that the baby formula shortage is a perfect example of how you cannot rely on your national supplies to satisfy fundamental needs. Now, that's preposterous given that we have 350 million people and there is no reason that we cannot have enough supply variety to insulate us from this stuff. And even in one of the articles I was reading, I don't know if it was the New York Times, I think it might have been the New York Times, it was like a mainstream media thing, they had to point out that the reason there's hardly any variety is these enormous primarily regulatory barriers to entry. And I might be okay with that. I mean, I'm never okay with that ever. But I mean, I might not make strong arguments against it. Like it's a little hard for me to do it for the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, because their actual safety record is so good. But in this case, they're saying the safety isn't good. It was so bad that it caused this insane shortage. And it was 100% a function of the regulatory apparatus that made this happen. So we're going to get to that, but let's just talk about what they say actually happened with the baby formula crisis. So if you go to the baby formula crisis, ah, this stuff is getting really silly. Okay, so the Wikipedia article is, it was a result of the 2021-2022 global supply chain crisis compounded by a large-scale product recall import restrictions, and market concentration. So I can just look at that right now and say market concentration is a function of the regulatory barriers. Import restrictions is a function of regulatory barriers. I'd missed that the first one. The large-scale products recall was a function of regulatory incompetence. I'll get to that. And the global supply chain crisis of 2021 and 2022 was definitely a function of ill-conceived and unnecessary policies, the lockdown stuff. And and actually, that's not even sufficient. If you actually dig into the global supply chain crisis, you will find those perfect storms that include inexplicable failures in transportation, a lot of things. I've actually talked about it before, but you could probably dig into it yourself. And as they talk about this, they're saying they're leading with, Wikipedia is leading with this being a function of the global supply chain crisis. And The wiki narrative definitely says that this is primarily a COVID thing. Oh, you understand. It's all this stuff that's coming together. There was a shortage when 
the lockdown first happened, and this has all just been coming from there. There's a similar narrative in the lumber supply thing. The real shortage that you were feeling more recently had absolutely nothing to do with the lockdown. That was one of my perfect storms that I did cover in a previous deep dive. So as they're talking about this being a legacy from the beginning of lockdown, which was two years ago, every single solitary article that is used as a citation in that first introductory paragraph is from May 2022. And I went and looked into, I, I did a Google search prior to, say, whatever, January 2022 to make sure I was not dealing with this Abbott closure or any of that. And I only found a couple of articles about the baby formula shortage. I think one of them was from November 2021, and that was in CNN. And it says that there were supply chain issues, but there's also increased demand and also high rates of theft that go up when there's more profitable market. So if there's any kind of perception of a shortage, and the increased demand, in my opinion, is probably hoarding. People are worried, so they're just hoarding it. But thieves will steal more of it if the prices are higher. So it's kind of a, it's it's like price gouging, or it's like when you want price gouging. It's like price controls. It creates the, the shortage that it scares you about or whatever that it resulted from. So there was a, uh, an article. This was a weird article. There was an article from March 2020 in the New York Times that was updated in October 2021, but without any kind of updated language. So it was still referring to like what they were expecting to happen in April, meaning April 2020. So I don't know what they changed in that article. I would like to know. Uh, but it still says it was mostly panic buying. It was mostly panic buying. And that would result in a perceived higher demand, more theft, a black market, all of this, hoarding. So now this is why you want price gouging, so-called price gouging, because if the if the stores had just started pay, charging $100 a can, people would stop hoarding it. And you just can lower the price until until there's a real equilibrium and then people will calm down because there will always be stuff on the shelves. Even if it's expensive, it is something that you would pay a lot for. Or as one Washington Post article said, you could learn how to relactate. I thought that was kind of a, a, that would be a cool trick. So I've heard it. I've heard of it. So that's the the Wikipedia article is, in, in my opinion, is more of a cover-up than an actual revelation so what actually happened was Abbott Labs, which makes 46% of the formula used in this country, was forced by the FDA to close one of its plants, which is which makes up for 20% of the national supply. Like, that's a big hit, and it's going to put pressure on everybody. In February, and it remains closed to this day. That's a long time, March, April, May, June. It's like almost four months. And and also, and it's not clear if this was just from that plant, Abbott recalled a lot of the formula. So not only is it not pushing it out there, it pulled a lot of it back. This says the actual passage from Wiki is Abbott announced a recall of three powder formulas in February and closed the Sturgis plant during an investigation by the FDA, which found worrying bacterial strains at the plant. Four months earlier, a whistleblower lodged a complaint with the FDA claiming that there were a number of issues at the facility, such as loose sanitation measures, failure to run proper tests for bacteria in the formula, and the falsifying of records. Now, I, I, after reading more, 
call BS on all of that. And I think you, you might agree with me. There was a congressional hearing that included the FDA commissioner, Robert Califf, Abbott Senior Vice President Christopher Calamari. These are the two guys. So Califf and Calamari are the two guys who are talking to Congress. And Califf says that there was a whistleblower report from a fired employee at that plant in Sturgis that cited critical safety violations. They, it was sent in October, but it was lost in the FDA's mail system, but did resurface somewhere from four to six months later. And Caliph told lawmakers it was possibly because of staff shortages caused by COVID. It was COVID. <laughs> it reminds me of the family guy where, like, Lois is running for some political office or whatever. And every time she says 9-11, people are like, yeah. You know, like, they just like, because 9-11, yeah. Well, now it's because COVID. So he said, because COVID. And then on top of that, also because COVID, The inspection of the Sturgis plant was postponed and postponed, which would have been just an ordinary inspection, despite the fact that there were three reports of infant illnesses with possible ties to powdered formula. So there were illnesses. But let's look into that a little bit, shall we? The plant was closed in February after infants were sickened with Chronobacter Sakazaki bacteria after consuming powdered formula produced at the facility. So three infants sickened. Now, this is 20% of the supply in the country, so three is not a lot. But three children sickened, supposedly, from this after consuming powdered formula produced at the facility. Although testing, it, it adds as a little aside, although testing showed no direct ties to the plant. That's all. Testing showed no direct ties to the plant. And at that time, that's when Abbott issues the major recall. What isn't really emphasized in that article is that the FDA said a six-week government inspection of the plant found, quote, significant fundamental sanitation building and equipment issues, as well as the presence of Cronobacter Sakazaki, but not the specific strain that sickened the four infants. I guess it was four. So they did not find the strain of bacteria that sickened those kids in that plant. Doesn't that make that the only plant that didn't make them sick? Isn't that exculpatory? (laughs) I mean, uh, isn't it obvious that the kids did not get sick from that formula? If they got sick from formula at all? Another little tidbit I found, Chronobacter Sakazaki, in one of these articles I was reading, I didn't like dig into Chronobacter Sakazaki. It is a naturally occurring bacteria, and no unopened can of the formula from the Sturgis plant was found to be contaminated with it. So it's everywhere. They found it in that place because you'll find it everywhere. It wasn't in any formula, and it was not the strain that made these people sick. Okay? Sounds like we're good, right? (laughs) Caleb described the violations at the plant, and this is the quote, which included a leaking ceiling as beyond the pale. So the most extreme violation or the violation that was quote worthy was a leaking ceiling, not roof, but ceiling, which if I re- if I recall correctly, they replaced as beyond the pale. That means living outside of civilization. <laughs> but this is where it gets really cuckoo. 
Kayla said the plant could be open by June 4th. After that, company officials said it will take six to eight weeks to begin moving formula onto store shelves. June, that's February to March, April, May, June. That's almost four full months. Responding to angry lawmakers about the slow place of the plant overhaul and reopening, Mr. Califf, he's the FDA guy, blamed a combination of failures of leadership, money, and technology at the FDA. So he's taking some responsibility. He says he gives himself a five out of 10. But I'm not looking back. Why isn't this open now? You want to know why it's not open now? Califf and Abbott could not actually cite any specific reasons why it wasn't open right now. And Mr. Calamari of Abbott told lawmakers the plant immediately addressed the violations found in the FDA inspection, most of which I don't even think rose to the level of violations. They were observations. The inspection began on January 31st and concluded on February 18th. Mr. Califf, the FDA guy, was asked about the three-month gap between the plant closure and the reopening agreement, and he told lawmakers that the plant violations were so bad that the government sought a consent decree from the Justice Department that gave the FDA control over the reopening. He said we didn't have confidence that they would produce safe formula until we got control of the plant. These guys were giving themselves a 5 out of 10. (laughs) And the Abbott plant from... From what Mr. Calamari says, they ha- it has infrequently been found to violate safety standards over the years, over the past decade, and has worked to address the issues that the FDA wants to be addressed before the plant can reopen. But it sounds like he feels like he achieved that. He said, this Abbott guy also said he's reviewing the whistleblower report. He does not know that, that what the whistleblower said was true. He only learned about the whistleblower report in April, six months after it was supposedly, in my opinion, sent to the FDA's Detroit office. It says, Abbott says that the report was written by an employee who had been fired over safety violations. So they took a guy, they actually fired the guy over safety violations. Now, maybe it's a complete cesspool and the guy they made up that he was violated safety Or maybe it took the FDA six months to gin up, find somebody who would tell this story, who could plausibly have a reason to or make some story stick. And it took them six months to push that out. It's definitely possible. If you look at like January 6th, for example, the stuff that came out right after January 6th did not at all support the government's claims. It took months before so-called evidence emerged of that. And that, to me, diminishes the credibility of that. If it emerged immediately, it's kind of like witness testimony. Or if you write in your diary and it's like chronologically verifiable, then it doesn't look like you went back and made it up to fit your story. But I guess government is beyond (laughs) suspicion. Then the lawmakers, of course, are piling on this Abbott thing. But it seems to me that these guys were absolutely set up. I'm not saying they're innocent. I think they probably lobby for the laws that don't allow foreign formula in and lobby for the regulations that make them one of the few providers. I'm not sympathetic to them if that's what they do. But in this case, the lawmakers told Mr. Calamari that Abbott should apologize to families for the plant closure and the formula shortage it has triggered. I mean, it sounds to me like Mr. Califf should apologize to families for the shortage that it triggered. But it reminds me of the Versailles Treaty. If you don't want people looking for the real cause of the problem, then make one of the parties who has the least power or is in a 
in an inferior negotiating position, claim full responsibility, force him at the point of a gun. Uh, but this one detail in the story that leads to the real reason that all of this was happening, I think, is President Biden this month invoked the rarely used Defense Production Act, which Trump resuscitated, to enable U.S. military planes to ship formula from overseas. Wow. We do that now, right? We do things overseas. We bring firefighters in from overseas. We could populate probably the entire planet. (laughs) We have everything. We have food. We have energy. We have everything. We have water. We have everything. We should never have to get anything from anywhere else. I'm not saying we shouldn't get anything from anywhere else. But if we have to, I would say it's always and everywhere a policy problem. So why did the government, in my opinion, create this problem? So the answer to my question of why did the government create this problem in this way at this time revealed itself when I was doing research into the agenda items of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos. This had just happened. There was a CNN article about Davos that really laid it out for me. And I was looking up something different, but it just sprang out at me. So like all these articles came together. It's like, I have to do something on the baby formula. The choices, this is from the CNN article, the choices of both business and government are expected to lead to greater fragmentation in the global economy, and unprecedented shifts in supply chains. Wait for it. Creating a perfect storm of volatility and uncertainty, wrote a group of chief economists surveyed by the World Economic Forum. Quote, these patterns are expected to create further difficult trade-offs and choices for policymakers, and without greater coordination, shocking human costs. I only when I was like grabbing that quote for this conversation did I see that they actually use the expression perfect storm. I can't believe it. It's is a perfect storm. It's like, are all storms perfect? I don't know. Anyway, so that's all uh you know, shocking human costs if we don't address this with coordination. Like that's the conspirators justifying themselves, calling all conspirators. Okay, it goes on to say economists are understandably worried about a retreat to polarized East-West models of trade and production. And then they say the U.S. baby formula shortage is a public health crisis that illustrates the peril of relying too heavily on domestic production for essential goods. So the U.S. baby formula shortage is a public health crisis that illustrates the peril of relying too heavily on domestic production for essential goods. Domestic production for essential goods. I can understand if you live in Vatulele or maybe even Bermuda, not wanting to rely heavily on domestic production for essential goods. But this is the United States of America. I'm just saying the reason it got colonized is because it's got it all, (laughs) you know? So somebody actually tweeted at me this thing about the problem is that these guys are like almost monopolists. They're oligopolists and they need to be regulated more heavily. And I didn't, I had done no research whatsoever, but immediately fired back. Like I'm hundred percent positive regulation is the problem because there isn't, like this baby formula manufacturing technology where the optimal factory size is 
all baby formula is made in one place and shipped to all corners of the globe. Like, like 500 million babies worth of formula is the smallest batch size, you know, or the, or the minimum capacity of a factory. They're especially now in factories are smaller and smaller. You can make efficient factories that don't have to be these giant behemoths. It's like the 3D printer on people's desks. Like that's a teeny weeny little factory. Teeny. So if you have a lot of concentration in an industry that really doesn't have extreme barriers to entry like a technology advantage that can't be just reverse engineered, like people can't figure out how to do it, I always look to policy, either regulatory barriers to entry, meaning they don't allow people to compete. It's so hard to like pass the muster that you can't get people in there. Or it's regulatory barriers to entry like OSHA or accounting or ESG or you know, legal where, where a small company just does not have the bureaucratic regulatory apparatus to run the economically efficient business size. So even vertical and horizontal integration in the same industry, usually companies break up, like in the old days of recession, would break companies up because they were just too efficient to actually have something grow the cotton and spin the cotton and weave the cotton and sew the cotton. Like you would just, all those things have totally different like skill sets that are necessary, efficiencies, and you would just break it up so that investors can decide where they want to invest. They, they can decide how to place their risk. They can decide if they think you're good at the thing that you're actually doing. So these big conglomerates, these big globalists, global co- companies don't really make sense economically unless there's a lot of barriers to trade, to you know whatever. So all of this says to me, you need to tear those barriers down. You need to tear them down. But the, these people will not accept, like the agenda setters, the, the narrative spinners, they won't ever allow you to think like that. They'll give you two options. Like the Washington Post is like, you can learn to lactate again. <laughs> that you can do. You can do the Benedict option, which is like getting completely off the grid. They're okay with that. They know it will neutralize the most, the people of principle, kind of like draft dodging neutralizes, politically neutralizes, made them go to Canada. They don't vote. So you can do that. You can take yourself off the grid. But other than that, if you want to stay on the grid, globalization is the only answer because how else will you get your formula? And they just leave out the possibility that there's something that liberty could deliver that they cannot control that would result in a better outcome. And they make you feel like that would be very insecure and uncertain because look at what the FDA did. They actually, not only was it, it's not really incompetence. That to me was sinister. They actually weaponized it because they want to get your buy-in for more of the same, and they have the power to do it. So it's very, it's way riskier to increase globalization in the wake of something like this, but that is what they're using it for. So there's a few things that I want to go back to the Davos thing, this geoeconomics and anti-globalism big theme. The food agenda, another deep dive I've got to do. I've got to give a big hat tip to Dean. He sent me Seeds of Destruction by William Engdahl. He also uh, pointed out to me this Rockefeller Foundation 2020 document on food insecurity. It's very clear what they are after. I've got so many insights into that. It will definitely be at least one more deep dive into that. But I try not to get too freaked about this stuff. I really, I don't. 
you know, I, I feel like if you look back, if you if I continue my analogy of World War One, World War Two, if you look back, they don't just wipe out the entire population of Earth. There is a remnant. We are the remnant, but we need to stay sane. So one thing I did over Memorial Day weekend, which I really enjoyed, I I noted, I remembered when I did the Van Halen retrospective. I really enjoyed that. So I thought I would do ZZ Top. I don't know if I told you guys that, but. So my husband's a huge ZZ Top fan, Van Halen fan, so I knew I could rope him in if it's stuff that he likes. But man, I didn't even realize how good ZZ Top was until Memorial Day when I listened to Tejas. It melted my face. <laughs> no, I didn't. It just, uh, uh, it was pretty awesome, I have to say. It just, it was so raw, so unique, so Texan, but like, uh, they're even... Uh, Billy Gibbons' voice is so perfect and his guitar playing so fantastic, but had depth and I love a little funk. I really, 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 really enjoyed that. And I and I was thinking, like, I haven't enjoyed music in so long because when I was when I had little kids, I had three kids in diapers at one point. And if I listened to music, I would literally forget to worry about them. And like one time, I think I pulled out of my driveway and I remembered like that I had a baby sleeping in the crib at home and I had to go back. I was like, wait, 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 no more music. I've got to just be constantly aware. But this week, today, I have one child graduating from high school. And last week I had my special guy graduate from high school. So I thought maybe, maybe I can listen to music again and relax a little bit and take some time off of constant worry. Although someone did tell me at that time, little children, little problems, big children, big problems. But I don't know about that. Generally, that's true, but I really enjoyed the Tejas thing. I could really forget my troubles as I listened to that. What was I sipping? I was sipping something delicious, I'm sure. A glass of rosé, now that I remember. Could you imagine? Anyway, that was super fun. And I just highly recommend trying to take a break from the worries and really, I mean, they actually have practices now. You, you, you know society's in a bad state when everyone knows what mindfulness means. It's like you're supposed to <laughs> be in the moment. That's like something we have to practice. So uh, if you want to have a good time and forget your worries with like-minded people, you can do a couple of things. Ism Cant, our, one of our favorite proppers, invites people to the Robbie the Fire show in Fayetteville on July 17th. I'll put the Eventbrite link in the show notes. And we also, when I told you about the Higher Side Chats meetup that was going to happen on July 3rd in St. Louis, it was a proper who did that. So if you want to meet, I'm going to call that a joint propaganda report Higher Side Chats meetup on July 3rd in St. Louis. So I also put the link for that event in the show notes. I am Monica Perez. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. And if you are a podcaster, if you find something interesting or original in the show, please give me a shout out. Nothing makes me happier than to hear a little shout out on another podcast. And if you just want to talk to me directly, shout me out, shout at me at Twitter at Monica Perez Show.